Welcome to the Backyard Buddhist Podcast, where we continually seek everyday enlightenment for the benefit of ourselves and all other beings. I'm Ron Powell McLean, and I'm here in the studio with Danny Hobart, my buddy. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Good morning, Powell. It is a good morning. It's awfully nice out today. It's not too hot. I actually had some windows open overnight. It was amazing. Those are those are good nights. The fresh air, although it doesn't do a lot for my allergies, is it's worth the trade-off. I I concur. I definitely have the allergy <laughs> component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So this is our 20th episode. I feel like that's a huge milestone. It probably feels bigger than it is, but I agree. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, for standing up of, you know, a podcast in the middle of a pandemic, I think that 20 episodes is kind of an amazing feat i'm yeah i'm super thrilled i you know i get really excited about the you know the stats i like data and i like um you know marketing statistics so you know i kind of watch you know to see you know what states in the u.s are are downloading us and there's little races between the states and then other countries and it's just amazing to me to see that people around the world are listening to us and you know, they may just be listening for comedy effect, but (laughs) I like to think that maybe we're, we're, you know, having a dialogue that is of benefit to more than just us. So. Oh, that's, that's, that is definitely the coolest part. Uh, if anybody at all finds value in it, then that's a heck of a heck of a contribution, you know. Well, you know, my rule is that I need to find value in it, <laughs> and, and I get a lot out of it. In fact, I, yeah. you know, I I do the sound editing, so I, which you know, admitting that maybe you know the other comedy effect <laughs> for our <laughs> listeners, but. <laughs> but uh, oftentimes when I'm listening, I hear things that I don't remember us saying. And my favorite part is laughing along with <laughs> us laughing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's enter- it's entertaining if nothing else. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, that's definitely a thing that, you can do with any sort of practice or religion, right? Like we've all been there in the church pew with the fire and brimstone or the tales of woe or the, you know, the, the serious nature of the afterlife being a topic. So it is, it is for me, certainly uh, a lot more fun to be able to joke around a little bit. Yeah. You know, you know, we have to, we have to find, you know, our native humor in, 
in all of this, you know, we take it too seriously. Um, it, you know, it seems, it can seem dire in, in some times and a little levity is not uncalled for. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite teachings is a little short video on uh, YouTube with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh from Plum Village. And, you know, he's, he's getting ready to teach some children and they're all sitting around him and he takes a lotus flower, a petal from a lotus flower, he chews it up, then he puts it in his hand and he rolls it and smooths it and he finally just blows it up and they're all looking at it and then he pops it on his head and it pops like a <laughs> balloon, you know, and he just cracks up, he cracks up at himself and they're all laughing and, you know, he's a, he's a smart guy, yeah. right? Like he's a wise, wise teacher and it's it's really a cool thing you know of course the Dalai Lama he laughs all the time too I mean you can see it in interviews and it's just a it's a nice thing it's nothing to be afraid of or it's one of my favorite things about the Dalai Lama and I've I've joked for years that I I need to install his um his laugh as my ringtone on my phone Oh yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call. I get wrapped up in the star Wars ringtones too much. They're too good. Too many, too many memories. I have boring the, ringtones. I, you know, I, I actually have no idea how to, how to, you know, install. I've never really spent any time trying to figure it out. So. Now there you go. That your guy. Project for, <laughs> there's your project for this afternoon. I, I have a few on my plate. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, as do we all, of course. So here's a little, you know, behind the, you know, behind the curtain um, for the Backyard Buddhist podcast. So most of the time, Dan doesn't have any clue what our topic for the day is going to be until I read the intro, which is we've found to be a cool dynamic and because of his lawyerly skills, he is um, really adept at asking cool questions. And I, I really love that dynamic, but we've kind of turned the tables today. So Dan has the topics and I have no idea. So it's, this is going to be fun for me or I'm going to screw it completely up. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no, I can promise you this. There's no gotchas in it. I, uh, I saved you from my vast and most excellent cross exam examination skills. <laughs> well, you know, gotchas can easily be removed in sound editing. And since I do that, you know, <laughs> that's true. All fair points. Now I thought, you know, uh, when we talked about doing this today, it might it might be a nice thing to do an episode like this every so often. Who knows? But this is this is this episode is really much, really really uh, a back to basics sort of podcast. So if you're an experienced Buddhist practitioner and 
you've learned all these things or understand them from 20 or 50, 30 years ago or three weeks ago. That's, you know, please don't be offended. We're not here to try to, uh, you know, <laughs> ruin your download time. So Buddhist plane, you Buddhist plane, because this is really some fairly basic stuff that I wanted to get out there, but they're questions that I had before I ever started practicing and they're fairly remedial. Some of them. So just some sort of interesting things. I also have a background in history. So I like fact things. I like people who were people and that kind of thing. So um, this, this will not be our normal course of action folks, but a little bit of a change of pace. And, you know, as we are the backyard Buddhist podcast, uh, you know, we're here for, for beginners and, and casual, uh, practitioners as much as from time to time we'll get into more advanced things. So, you know, yeah, if you find it interesting, uh, you know, give it a listen and, if not, then complain to Ron on his, on his email, and uh, he'll be happy to he'll be happy to field your complaints. <laughs> Perfect. So let's get into this bad boy. Uh, here, here is, and and obviously your answers are your own. So you you do as much or as little as you want with these. Question number one: Who was Buddha? Who? was Buddha? Well, that's a little loaded question, I think. So to me, and the way I feel it's important, it's at least important for um, the context in which I use that image or that historical person. So I First, we'll say that I am a bit of a born skeptic. I sort of need to roll things around and try things on before I can say that it's right and wise and complete or true. So from that context, I, um, you know, one of my teachers used to use, um, or uses the term hagiography a lot. And that's really the sort of the symbolism of the religious story, um, historical religious story. So, you know, when we, you know, when we hear the account of Siddhartha Gautama that, you know, lived 25 or 2,600 years ago. And I say 25 or 2,600 years ago because it sort of, the date moves around. So <laughs> we're not exactly sure. And the caveat that nothing was written down historically until 400 years after his death or, you know, something of that account. So... I take everything with a grain of salt and I am not looking to worship somebody. So I look to that historical figure as someone who practiced in this way and reportedly had success 
practicing in this way. So there's these big, beautiful stories of, you know, sitting under a tree for, you know, a time, however long that time is. Um, But, you know, maybe he was a prince and maybe he was a, um, you know, not a prince or I, you know, the the idea is that you know this is a person who kind of had everything that he wanted and then decided to go to the other extreme of renunciation of giving everything away to test out what caused suffering and specifically sickness old age and death and the suffering around those and he wanted to find the the relief of that life suffering so he went on this quest and so i would you know i i also want to add that the title buddha means enlightened one awakened one so there are many buddhas and not just the example of the dude who lived some time ago 25 2600 years ago but what he practiced and how he practiced and how he sort of formed the how he structured the pulling apart of our conditional thinking and how many masters have used that and refined that over the years. Does that kind of answer the question? Sure. Or did I go too far? (laughs) No, there's, you know, there's no wrong questions, no, or no wrong answers to these. Well, I'm going to say there's no wrong questions either because I came up with them. So we're fine. We're both fine on both counts. Right. Okay. So tiny preface for the next question. I grew up in the RLDS church, which was reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now uh, the Latter-day Saints part will sound familiar to some folks because that's the modern day Mormon church. The reorganized part is that, uh, so Joseph Smith famously is the founder of the LDS religion, the faith, the church. Uh, Joseph Smith was killed, and Brigham Young went from Missouri to Utah and formed that church. Joseph Smith's wife, his child, Joseph Smith Jr., they stayed along with other people and did the RLDS church, which is in Independence, Missouri. Probably a little too much background, but there it is. I think it's good. I don't know all of this detail, by the way. Oh, so there you go. It's, it's news and uh, history to me. So. Okay. So uh, the RLDS Church has the, the Bible, the and the one that I typically had was the King, King James Version. Okay. So fairly straightforward, fairly broadly accepted Old Testament and New Testament. And then, of course, they added another book called the Book of Mormon to their doctrine. And the key here is that Joseph Smith 
and then the subsequent presidents or leaders of the church are known to be prophets and by prophet that means they talk directly to god okay it is accepted in the faith and the religion that other people may receive messages or communicate with god or jesus through the holy spirit but that's the person that's the the key you know transmitter of god's word okay so and of course in general uh people would say that and understand that um you know jesus obviously is the son of god and that he talked to god and so our prophets in that sense so here's my question for you in terms of buddha okay and i'm not necessarily looking for like a direct you know comparison check boxes or anything between that but how is buddha a prophet is buddha like that that like jesus or like a traditional uh you know leader of a christian faith or or, or another faith in that they they make doctrine rules in that they commune with a higher power in that they sort of spread this message how would you well i think um got all these easy questions dan you're gonna have to <laughs> did, did I know. you say this was remedial this is remedial this is uh, this is day one yeah you're funny okay so <laughs> let's unpack this a little bit so in my uh interpretation there's a difference between the well there's a difference in interpretation between what I find to be the ineffable source or consciousness and the God that's a guy, a guy in the cloud that, you know, that is uh, connecting and, you know, anointing and um, giving special communication powers to one dude on earth who then gets to write it all down. Um, so there's a, a bit of a, a difference there. I think what, what the Buddha and what practitioners of Buddhism are connecting with is a simultaneous source of reality and that first being sort of that ineffable well actually probably this is probably the second but the 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 source that is the ineffable energy or consciousness throughout all things everywhere this all inclusive all transformative all pervasive energy source and then there's this relative existence that we can interpret through our own physical human sentient form 
So there's a, there's a simultaneous reality that's going on, but our, a lot of our suffering comes from just focusing on the relative existence. So our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and sensations that come and arise from our human condition cause us suffering due to our unhealthy attachment to those phenomenon. So there's, there's just a difference. Um, so there's not, I wouldn't say that there's a guy that's talking through a sage or prophet that is saying, here, go spread this to the world. But instead, one who practices and has a self-realization of, of these two simultaneous sources and intertwined sources. And we can say that the, the physical, the relative actually stems from the ineffable consciousness. So ultimate reality births everything. Everything is interconnected within that. Everything is impermanent as well within that. So there's a constant cycle of change within that reality. So, you know, to ask or answer your question, it's not, to me, it's not um, Buddha interpreting for another entity. It's Buddha putting words to the practice of what is sort of wordless. So it points to a bigger reality that is indescribable. Clear as mud. Yeah. How'd I do there? <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to describe that which is indescribable, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But but we can point to it. It's like the you know the the masters often say it's like the finger pointing to the moon. So your experience of seeing the moon shouldn't stop at the finger. A another analogy that I really liked was. It's like showing you a picture of pizza and asking you if you enjoyed that pizza. <laughs> you know, it's yours to, you know, you have to pick it up, feel it, smell it, taste it, chew it, digest it to understand your relationship with the pizza and not just have the wise sage show you a picture of the pizza. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good analogy, actually. I like that. Too. So we have to try, you know, this really is about individual practice and, you know, the ripening of your understanding as you do that. And it, it's often, this is the to me this is the hard part because so much of the real 
the real meaty stuff is it's indescribable. So for me to have an experience, but then come to you and go, Oh, Dan, this is what happened. It, it just, it sort of deflates and diminishes just to try to explain it. Well, you said the in your answer several times, you said the P word. So I'm going to have you uh, or ask you to uh, describe or explain what is practicing Buddhism. Oh. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's, well, let's just say there's, you know, there's three components to that. And that's body, speech, and mind. So we're, we're practicing through, through our understanding. Our actions are then a result of our understanding. Our speech, what we say and how we say it is a result of our understanding. And our mind, our thoughts, the things that, that we cultivate and perpetuate within our own brains are then a result of our understanding. And, you know, you can look at Buddhism in, in several ways as well. So it can be a religion, it can be a philosophy, and it can be a practice. And for me, it's all three. And I need to embrace those, you know, in my process, I need to embrace each one of those. The, the most important part for me is the dressing room where I try things on. And that is meditation. So when I sit down and I, you know, endeavor to contemplate what I've read and pick apart and understand what it is that I have experienced. You know, for me, um, this is really a mirror practice. So, you know, with, with my current understanding and, you know, this, this is an ever changing understanding for all of us. So as we begin to unpack these, you don't just get to a graduation day where you're like, Oh yeah, I'm enlightened. I know all things. It's really not the way it works. It's really unpacking it and unpacking it and unpacking it further. You know, it's like the, the um, fountain of, you know, ever replenishing fountain of experience and, knowing and the combination of those two things. So practice for me means sitting on the seat and very specifically, I, I want to connect with that natural beingness that is unaffected by those thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions that are occurring in my human form. So that consciousness that we were talking about, that ineffable consciousness is what I'm 
really intent on connecting with because it's it's at that point I can see all of those other things. I can see emotions and th- sensations and thoughts as they are. They're just arising from my human experience. And I can be very compassionate from that space and think, ah, that's just me reacting in a very human way. Okay. <laughs> Is there does Buddhism have a heaven and a hell or either uh, one? Well, I would say there's both and it's all perception. To me, you know, let's, let's just, you know, pick apart what, what those things mean to us. So we think about heaven as, as what blissful or okayness I like to think of it as perpetual okayness. So nirvana to me is perpetual okayness, not happiness, not, you know, you know, exuberant joy, but just, oh, okay. That's, you know, neutral. I'm not bad. I'm not good. I'm just, hey, everything's okay. That feels like nirvana to me. And hell, and, you know, Buddhism depending on the school that you read, there are many hell realms and those hell realms are very descriptive um, in terms of sort of the facets of the conditions of our own human experience. So the, the unthinkable hell of like, there's one we call the hungry ghost which is like you have a tiny, tiny little mouth that isn't big enough to put food in or maybe just a grain of rice, but, but you have this being that's starving. And there's, it's an ex, to me, it's an example of the facets of our own living experience. So, you know, imagine that you were in a body that was constantly hungry and you just simply couldn't get enough in. You couldn't nourish enough. You couldn't be satiated by what you were putting in. So there's a, you know, that there's a hell in that. There's a, a, a fear and a terror and an agitation and frustration and anger and you know, we, we talk about the hot hells and how, you know, it's really about this projected discomfort. So to me, hell is, is something that is a living experience, not a destination. And the same with heaven or nirvana. These are, these are living experiences and I can choose through my awareness where to put my attention and specifically like, you know, if I, if I take that seat back, you know, where I just sit back in that very neutral space that's unaffected by whatever's going on and I can see, Oh, I'm really suffering. I'm really suffering. Now at that point, I'm probably not going to decide 
I'm suffering, but I'd like more of that. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep focusing there. Instead, we can choose to shift and not ignore, but shift our attention in ways that are beneficial. To me, that starts with compassion, just understanding that I am in a state of suffering. I'm not, you know, I'm not feeling great today. I'm, you know, I'm off, I'm cranky, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, whatever, whatever's going on. And when I can notice it, I can make subtle changes to my, my experience by changing it up. Maybe I need to go outside. Maybe I need to eat. Maybe I need to sleep. Maybe I just need to stop thinking about that thought that keeps rolling around in my head that I've been stuck with for hours. Okay. No, I get that. I, um, that's your description is pretty consistent, you know, with my understanding of suffering, obviously create your own, you know, it's your perception that sort of guides your reality. Right. Right. It's our focus or lack of focus that creates that. Gotcha. Okay. This may or may this may or may not be a sort of a precepts question. I'm not going to ask you to recite one or five or fifty thousand, <laughs> however many there are. Um, but everybody's familiar with the Ten Commandments, Christians and non-Christians, even generally speaking. You know, it, it, those are the big those are the big rules. Um, so does Buddhism have rules? And along sort of the you know carved in granite tablet rules and along those lines then uh do you sin if you break one is there sinning in buddhism Um, i'm gonna i'm gonna answer that one first there is no sin like uh, christians have sin so um and the five precepts so we we start out with five precepts for any one on the path. So it doesn't mean it doesn't uh, um, change whether you're a, a lay person, a monk, uh, whatever. That the, these are uh, focuses, 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 focusi, 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 focusi. These, so these are ethical choices and kind of standards, I will call them standards of ethical conduct. We want to refrain from killing. We want to refrain from stealing. Refrain from sexual misconduct. Refrain from false, harsh, and idle speech. And fifth is refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. So these aren't rules. They aren't meant to be commandments. But instead, ideas that can help you point your ethical conduct to a beneficial direction. 
and these all make sense. You know, when we're talking about killing, we don't really want to just kill things or, you know, they, the, I think the original, and this is my interpretation from, you know, from things I've heard from my teachers that the original was meant to mean don't kill other humans, but you can take that to other degrees. You can think about your, you know, your, the ethical killing of animals or unethical killing of animals for consumption. There can be, to me, there's, there's mindless killing. And for me, it's all the way to bugs. And I'm not a nihilist. I, I'm not worried about driving my car and potentially squashing an ant. I'm not going to that level. I think there's a middle way, a middle path that is conscious and making an effort not to just randomly kill things. So, you know, my husband laughs at me because, you know, a fly gets in the house and his, <laughs> his upbringing, tra- upbringing and training, which is not far from my own, upbringing and training was to just swat it right that flies in the house kill it and i feel terrible about it because i think i think about it in you know in my terms if i were lost and in a place that i shouldn't be do i have to be murdered as well so i i can't even tell you how ridiculous it is that I am herding flies out the back door. And I just do. And I know that when I run across a little spider, you know, in my bathroom, I don't just kill it. I'm like, you know, you're not supposed to be here, right? (laughs) But I don't kill it. And I don't put it outside because, you know, it was probably born in my house, (laughs) right? And for me to throw it outside is probably it's death. (laughs) Something's going to eat it or it's not, you know, it's not conditioned for the climate outside and I've killed it. So there are things that I just leave alone and other things that I put in place that are deterrents that are sort of my sign that says, um, please don't come in here. You don't belong here. So, which could be essential oils and things across, you know, door frames and 95% of the time it works. And sometimes my husband murders a fly, (laughs) but I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who, you know, leads the, the moths back outside. Yeah. There, there definitely aren't a lot of us, at any sort of, you know, age past childhood that hasn't killed, killed the bug on purpose. Yeah. Um, I remember watching a, an interview with the Dalai Lama on Oprah. I think it was Oprah. Maybe it was somebody else. Now, I don't know, but years, 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 decades ago. And the, the, the interviewer asked him if he ever, you know, heard anything or he goes, 
he thought about it, as he always does, of course. He's incredibly thoughtful. And he thought about it, and he sat back, and he goes, well, when I was younger, I had bed bugs. <laughs> and I I didn't think very good thoughts about those bed bugs. <laughs> like, and I thought, you know, if there's anybody that's on the planet that I would believe actually just didn't go around and murder all the bed bugs, it would be him. Like his bad thing was, I had some bad thoughts about, about the bugs. <laughs> sort of a little, that's a little different standard, you know, well, than and most not, of us could. You know, it, I, the humor doesn't escape me. And I, right. <laughs> I think that, you know, we still have to treat, treat for bed bugs. You know, it's not healthy for us to live with, you know, bed bug bite, bed bug bites, but you know, the consciousness and the compassion involved with doing it. It's not that these little bugs are, you know, they weren't out to get you and they're not trying to make your life a living hell. They're doing what bugs do. They're doing what bed yeah. bugs do. So be compassionate in, you know, in your interpretation of that. Okay. So I want to ask you one more sort of concept that concept thing, and then we're going to move on to uh, a couple of people questions. So okay. um, reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Now this is not, I don't know how remedial this could ever be considered. <laughs> uh, so, so this is one that's, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, sticks out to me. So what is it? Does it happen? Do you believe in it? Do we believe in it? Did Buddha believe in it? What do you have to say about reincarnation? Well, I think from my understanding, because I've certainly spent a lot of time uh, thinking about it. I think as humans, we try to look for that, that uh, chicken door. You know, when you go to the haunted house and there's the chicken door, you know, if you're, you're scared and you're chicken and you're oh, out yeah. the door that yep. we want to, we want to look for the exits, the chicken exits. Um, if it gets too much, I want to go there. So if I'm thinking about, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And is this life that I'm in that seems like to be moving pretty quickly at times, you know, is this it? Is this going to be my only existence? And there's a terror and fear in a lot of us when we think about what if this is, this is the only shot. So we might start telling ourselves that um, there's an option for a reset and that makes us feel good and feel better. I think that's one perspective. I think another perspective that I, I personally subscribe to is that you know, we think about the three Dharma gates and that's that all things are impermanent, all things are interconnected, and that there is this level of suffering through the experience of sentient beings. So with the connection of those three that sort of rotate and um, live together, that if all things are interconnected and I think about this from a scientific standpoint of, you know, the second 
law of thermodynamics that everything that comes together comes apart and comes back together in a multitude of ways and comes apart and there's a constant change and pulse through this interconnected experience and you know in buddhism we call that pratija samutpad that's this ultimate shunyata emptiness where everything that ineffable consciousness that births everything so when something dies or comes apart within that it's still within that and it comes together and apart and together and apart and you know we're we're also looking for meaning in our human existence and i think that is a lot of our ego our ego wants us to be of value and so much value that we are granted another chance or hundreds and thousands of chances so to answer your question i've thought about it a lot and i leave a question mark i leave a question mark an openness a curiosity i don't know that i'm going to figure it out um within this lifetime so i'll do it in the next <laughs> um, wink wink <laughs> wink wink so you know there's some really interesting things like the tibetan book of the dead which i i recommend anyone who is pondering um this subject to read there's beginner versions of it that are brilliant um i have one on kindle that's um you know like a basic or beginner's guide to the tibetan book of the dead and it's you know it's an account of basically 49 days of here's what you're going to see in the bardo and the bardo is that that um space if you will between death and rebirth reportedly so it's an interesting read for something that is so very precise of this is what you're going to see on this day so it makes me question <laughs> you know somebody put that together from you know seems like knowledge yeah. so i don't discount it but i'm also not relying on it and i don't want to sit back on my laurels and i don't want to waste this human experience so i say you have to you have to really live each and every day as if it's the only day that's good that's a good lesson and a good good way to be present too obviously live live today because you're living today right uh okay so this next question is a little more uh it's pretty open-ended really and but it's really sort of a structural sort of how is buddhism operate in the world so starting with the dalai lama uh, and sort of working down through the ranks. 
uh, some of the words that you hear are llama and tolku and monk. Uh, and of course, there are other titles that folks have along the way. But how do how do all these sort of what, the hierarchy, the leadership, the the structural integrity of Buddhism in in our world today. Like what what what's a what's a you know the dummy's guide to that? Um, well, it, it's it's funny because we you know if you're out, sort of outside of Buddhism, you probably think of the Dalai Lama as the Pope is the Pope of Buddhism. And that's not exactly what he is. Um, he is, he is the head or leader of um, one school, one school of Buddhism. There are many schools of Buddhism and um, many that are outside of the Tibetan, which, you know, he is, uh, you know, a part of the, Tibetan lineage, but there are many other types of Buddhism and, you know, just, you know, from the historical movement and footprints of Buddhism, you know, this is something that came out of India and went to many other cultures. And what we've seen is that it, it, it basically has the same ideas or principles at the root of the practice, but then they change culturally dependent on where they land. So, you know, monks and the, you know, the school hierarchy in Sri Lanka is much different than the Zen practices in the, you know, the Asian, um, you know, in, in Jap Japan or China or Korea or Vietnam or, um, you know, it's, it's endless. Um, and, and, <laughs> and different, it's, it's really just basically different in, you know, in each culture that it has landed. So, you know, there are multiple schools and multiple styles of, of, um, of Buddhism. So things like terms or titles like Tulku or Rinpoche or Dalai Lama or, you know, monk are really just Tibetan. Uh, monk, you know, monk is, you know, through, through probably all the schools and that's really just a monastic and someone who has, you know, taken precepts, wears robes, lives in monastery uh, most times, um, but practices and supports the the temple side of things. And in many parts of the world, those monastics are sort of um, supported by the lay community. So they're kind of doing the work of... Um, the you know the practice in in the in the temples so that the rest of the community can just uh do the normal day-to-day -day living does that make sense yeah absolutely here in america it's different but um 
you know, that's wrought with issues and problems as well. Exactly. Um, I was just looking at the time, so I am going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm asking one more question. And of course, unless you want to add more, do whatever you want, but, um, and this is one of my favorite things. So I saved it for last. Uh, we, it's a part of your practice and our sangha uh, when we used to be able to go inside together <laughs> to chant in the Chinese temple uh, once a month at the Nelson Atkins uh, Art, Art Museum in Kansas City. And they have a beautiful Chinese temple and they have a beautiful uh, representation of Guan Yin. Guan Yin of the South Seas, she's called. Yeah, Guan Yin is a bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. What is a bodhisattva? So the, the term bodhisattva is really one who has reached enlightenment, but has vowed to come back lifetime after lifetime to help and teach and get us all across the the finish line and the finish line being, you know, to an enlightened living state. I'm fascinated by this because who, who finishes the race and then comes back and then is like, eh, I'm going to run halfway back or all the way back or 10 steps back and help these other people across. People do it. Like, have you run a race? Those five it's Ks, a, ten Ks that you know, my my non-athletic butt has done. People do it. They finish and then they come back to like rally. And I think it's amazing. You know, the other the other part of you know bodhisattvas in our practice is really about sort of. Um, being the Yidam deity and deity practice. So for instance, we may, we may look at a figure like Guan Yin and depending on the, the country and culture and school that it's associated with, um, she has different names um, and may have different genders or neutral gender. So there's Guan Yin, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, there's Tara within the, the Tibetan um, and Mahamudra um, schools. Um, and there's like mm, 30 different colors, I think, of Tara. So there's green Tara, white Tara, red Tara. And I don't know all the Taras. I primarily, <laughs> I primarily use white and green, green first and then white. Um, and green is really healing, sort of a healing energy of compassion. So when we look at these deities and use them in this way, it's really looking in the mirror and looking toward ourselves for the facets of compassion and healing that we all cultivate and can cultivate within ourselves. So the, so the imagery is is important. All of those those deities, those idols, those things are meant to 
shine a light on the facet of ourselves, the human nature of ourselves that is able to cultivate those skillful actions. I think that's as good a place any to stop. That's um, we're, we're bumping up on our longest episode and uh, <laughs> these are but, great but questions. What a, so. what a, what a glorious, uh, beautiful, I, I just, the Bodhisattva, uh, the Bodhisattvas are just a, just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to, to reach a goal, to finish, to, to, you know, find, find the enlightenment, be fully awakened and say, eh, now I can it's show others. Good. And now I can show others as opposed to just kicking back in your recliner and being done. There's a beautiful Im imagery that's used um, often that basically, you know, says that these wise sages and people who have walked this path before leave a lamp burning on that path to help us guide. And that's as good as it gets. The books, you know, the books that are left, the even the YouTube videos and um, the teachings that are handed down, the practices that are taught and retaught are meant to be lamps lit along the path for you and your own self-discovery. So it's so important to not overlook them. And there's a teaching in everything, whether it feels right or feels wrong, there's a teaching and an understanding that comes from that particular Dharma. Cool. Well, thanks for everybody tuning in. This has been a cool episode. I, I think we did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, I think we did it. So to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And to Dan, thanks for always jumping on this with me and picking apart those practical ideas that help us along the path. Thanks, Paolo, for this, as always. And folks, remember, as always, to meditate as fast as you can. Bye now. <laughs>